the Spirit. Uh, this is not the way I wanted to introduce this sermon this morning, but I felt led to. Because the Spirit truly uh, is fascinating how he works. Uh, it's not every day that <laughs> your preacher gets up and says, hey, guess what we're going to preach about in church on Sunday morning? We're going to preach about that part in the Bible where it talks about cannibalism. So, um, <laughs> That's not every day that you hear that, um, and I know that. So uh, as I've been studying this particular passage, um, it, what I hope will make sense is what I'm about to say and what I wrote early on last week, that throughout this narrative that we're going to study this morning, it kind of is one of those parts of the Bible that sort of puts another part of the Bible to the test, which is we all know Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are called. All things work together for good uh, according to the purposes of God, to them who are loved of God, and so on and so forth. We know that verse. We know what it says. And then, yet there's sometimes I think, in our lives, and especially as we read the Scriptures too, where it sort of puts that to the test. Where we have to honestly ask ourselves, does everything work together for good? This is hitting me this week only because I wrote that early last week. And my dad, he called me uh, sometime last week and he proceeded to tell me of how a very good pastor friend of mine recently took his life. Very suddenly, very shockingly, leaving behind teenage children and a wife and a church. And then we all, of course... Our whole church family has gotten the news regarding Jude and the ways in which that family has been <clears throat> impacted and made me stop to ask again that question to myself. Do I truly believe that all things work together for good? Because there's times when it doesn't feel that way. When we're in those moments of doubt and defeat and perhaps darkness, it can feel as if that verse is a lie. I would, say, I would say that our particular passage this morning is going to do that. It puts to the test, do you really believe that all things work together for good? Do you really believe that in your heart of hearts? I would say that I hope that you do. Because even in all of the dark materials of our lives, the dark materials of this story of Scripture, there is always and forever a king of grace who is working things out according to his purposes. And that, to me, is the key of that verse in Romans. His purposes, not mine. His glory, not mine. That's what he's working. That's what he's performing. Even when it doesn't seem like it. That's what I hope to bring about this morning. It'll make sense. Even in this very dreary passage. And I'm sorry that we're going to be in this passage. But actually I'm not sorry. Because there's a lot of hope here. There's a lot of joy as we will go on and see. It's hard to know as we look at 1 Kings chapter 6. In verses 23 and 24, we have sort of this gap in time that doesn't really appear if you just read the verses back to back. In verse 23, it talks about how at the end, these 
invaders from Syria, as it says there, went no more into the land of Israel. And yet then, right away, in verse 24, it says, And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered up all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Which is just kind of curious. Because in one spot we're, we're told how no one's going anymore into the land of Israel. And yet how in the next verse, now there's a huge besieging army attacking the gates of Samaria, Israel's capital. There's really no historical contradiction. We don't have to worry about that. Even though some scholars have looked at this and pinpointed this as some grave uh, sort of controversy here. But to me, there's no real issue in seeing how this invasion was called off as we studied last week. And then how here, or two weeks ago, and then how here and now it's restarted again. Especially when you consider the circumstances that Israel now finds themselves in. Look at verse 25. Because it says... And there was a great famine in Samaria. Suddenly now, the, the, the people of Israel, the people that uh, the Syrians view as the enemy, they see them totally weak, totally vulnerable. So they take this opportunity. They say, this is our golden opportunity to invade. We don't have to worry about them having a strong, massive army who is fit and, and well-trimmed and, and well, uh, well-nourished or anything like that. There's a famine that has struck this land. Israel morale, Israel's morale is, we could say, at an all-time low. So no wonder the king here, Ben-Hadad, takes this opportunity. Yeah, you better believe he's going to invade now. And such is what he does. He besieges, he surrounds the capital, Samaria, such that Israel's economy is completely devastated. Look again at verse 25. There was this great famine in Samaria. Behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Which is a really curious note. All these different materials and all these different things are being uh, ascribed prices. We're being given a little bit of insight into the Israelite economy here. One thing you might want to know, dove's dung is not pigeon manure. It could be, perhaps, but one way this is often translated is almost like slang for really bad food. <laughs> so the really bad food is selling at a really high price, we could say. And a, a, a donkey's head doesn't have much nutritious value to it. And even that is being sold at an exorbitant price. Israel's economy is decimated. The people are, are scrounging at anything to try and get them, uh, get them by uh, to allow them to survive this really difficult situation. Which we could just basically summarize this as the historian saying, this is how bad things got. <laughs> but actually gets much, much worse. Look at verse 26. One day... The king of Israel, as it says, was passing upon the wall. Perhaps he's doing his rounds, walking around the ramparts of Samaria, doing his thing. Maybe he's trying to lift the spirits of his people. He's passing by upon the wall, and there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my lord, O king. She comes at her true leader, the leader that she knows, the the politician that has led Israel through these years, who now sees this nation totally brought to its knees. She comes and says, help me, I have a matter that needs your assistance. And the king at first snaps kind of impolitely at her. Notice he says, and he said, if the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? 
out of the barn floor or out of the wine press. I have no help to give, he's basically saying. But then he calms down a little bit. In verse 20, he asks her what's wrong, and then she tells this awful story. Verse 28, and the king said unto her, what aileth thee? And she answered, this woman said to me, give thy son that we, we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, give thy son and that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. Perhaps you're a little bit <laughs> petrified by such an account. <laughs> Rightly so. This is indeed one of the most morbid stories, I would say, in, most, in, in all of Scripture, that this is how bad Israel had gotten. This is how desperate they were. In order to survive, in order to keep on living, they had resulted and resorted to cannibalism. That's the nature of things. That's how bad it was. And I would say, uh, my heart goes out for this poor woman. Now say so too that as is often the case, I think this little glimpse into this one citizen isn't just a one-off. I would say that this woman is largely representative of all of Israel. You can see her hopelessness. She's lost. She's listless. She has nothing to pin her hope on. Such that she's now bringing this matter of injustice that totally is revolving around this cannibalistic event. But notice how the king responds in verse number 30. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes. And he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and behold he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, go, do so, God, do, do so and more also to me. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. He is repulsed too. He is totally floored that this is the way in which his people are now trying to get by. He repents. It's repentance more of not saying sorry, but just total sorrow. He is grieving. He is angry. He is dejected. And yet, here, as as you notice in verse 31, he targets all of that on one person. He focuses all of that despair that he has on Elisha. The man of God. And as he says here, by whatever he can do, by whatever it takes, he's going to make sure that Elisha loses his head. That's that's the answer. I'm so mad that I'm going to go to that man of God and I'm going to exact vengeance on him. Because surely, surely Elisha is doing something to bring this about. This is the man of God. Why is he not intervening? Why is he not doing something? Things are bad. Does he not see the way my people are desperate? He is a very despairing king leading a very despairing people who are in a very desperate situation. But notice amazingly the contrast. So we have these people who are desperate. The king and this woman and all of her friends now are so incredibly destitute. And notice Elisha. What do you think he's doing? Is he, is he pacing around his house? Is he panicking? Is he, is he shouting? Is he, what is he doing? Notice verse 32. But Elisha sat in his house. And the elders sat with him. 
There's a contrast that is so incredibly powerful here. The man of God, yes, we don't, we're not told what he's doing. He's sitting, he's talking with his elders. Perhaps they're praying. Perhaps they're discussing things of Jehovah God as it relates to their current situation. But I can tell you what they're not doing because they're sitting. They're not despairing. Elisha just exudes this confidence, this calm here in this passage. As he, as he says, verse 32, he, he informs them. Hey, there's a guy coming from the king on his way. Verse 32, but Elisha sat in his house and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how the son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And yet, before that can happen... Before the door can be barred, this messenger barges in and listened to his message. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? This is one of the saddest verses. When you realize who it comes from. It's coming from the king of Yahweh's people. And what has he just done? He has blamed Yahweh himself for this evil. Why has Yahweh allowed this evil to come upon his own people? This is the message sent directly from the king. And I think we should just pause on that. Because just as the woman's desperation and, and her, her entire destitution was, we could say, representative of Israel and more than just her. She, it is almost like she is representing how low Israel has been brought. So too, I would say, this king is representative of Israel's heart. He has nothing in his heart that is fond of Yahweh and his word. He actually says, you have brought this evil upon us. He's so antagonistic towards Yahweh that he wants to just get rid of his representative. He wants to get rid of his prophet. He wants to rid the land of this man of God, Elisha. That's how far Israel had fallen. That's how far they had devolved away from the things of God. That such that now they had come to see Yahweh not as their deliverer, not as their king, not as their God, but as the perpetrator of their misery. That's how low they were. That's how far removed they were from God's word. And it's interesting, if you read Leviticus, we, I won't take you there, but if you read Leviticus 26, Verses 27 through 29, God actually predicts and he promises this very thing. That if you turn away from me, he actually says, well, I'll just read it so you can see it. Uh, I always try to do that and pretend that I have all the Bible memorized, but I don't. I'm sorry. Leviticus 26. Look at verse 27. Because it's not, it's not as if Israel didn't know that this was in the card, so to speak. Look at verse 27. And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. God warned them. 
You get away from me, there's a trajectory to abject desolation. It's a trajectory towards, yes, one of the most awful and heinous things you could ever imagine. You will end up resorting to the only way of getting by is eating your own flesh. They were warned in the law. They were warned in God's word. God had not turned his back on his people. This comment from the king that this evil is from you is totally fabricated and false. God had not turned his back on his people. They had turned their back on him. They had rejected his word. They had totally uh, gotten away from all the things that God had desired for them. And let me just say and pause (laughs) that I think that this is a really accurate but at the same time really devastating parallel to the United States. No, we haven't resorted to eating our own people. (laughs) Not yet. But I would say we have turned a collective blind eye and a collective deaf ear to our young. Did you know that since 1973, there have been approximately, according to one research study, over 62 million babies aborted, a.k.a. murdered, since 1973. And yet there's still loud support among the masses for that type of massacre. Now, even more recently, there are sectors of this country where parents are being prevented, being stopped to have any sort of say when their child, when their teenager sort of comes to someone else and says that they are confused about their gender. That they're not allowed to have a say in that. In fact, this is directly from one state policy. It says, quote, school staff should not disclose information that may reveal a student's transgender status to others, including parents, unless legally required to do so or unless the student has authorized such disclosure, end quote. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe we are eating our own just in a different way. And I would say that this is all downstream of one thing, just like it was in Israel and just like it is in this very nation where we live and breathe. It's all downstream. All of this stuff is downstream of God's word being left totally unread and totally unheeded. When this is left in the corner and it's not even open, when it's not even regarded, you can be sure that devastation follows. You can be sure that things like this occur. It's in the cards. And I think what's truly devastating, watching this country implode sometimes, is that it does so all the while stiff-arming the one solution, the one hope that was given to it, the word of God itself. Nothing can ever follow a rejection of this word, a complete and other rebellion against it. Nothing, except, I could say, maybe... When God purposes to do something good through it. Notice, that was a a planned sidebar, but a sidebar. Notice, back in our text, chapter 7, verse 1. Because notice Elisha's response to this messenger. He comes to him and says, this evil is from God. What are we going to do? Notice Elisha. Then Elisha said, verse 1 of chapter 7. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. 
Tomorrow, about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Again, more Israelite economics. But essentially, we could just summarize one thing that Elisha here has just given this amazing word of relief that comes in the form of saying, your entire economy is going to recover within 24 hours. That's quite a statement. Quite a promise. And he understood sort of point being that that all of this being bought and sold and traded at the gates of Samaria likewise means that those who are crowding around the walls of Samaria will no longer be there. Meaning the enemy will be dispersed. It's a complete recovery of Israel's economy and a complete eradication of their enemies too. At the same time, that's what's going on in this promise. And it sounds preposterous because he says at this time, the very next day, tomorrow, within 24 hours, this is going to occur. One captain speaks up, verse 2, Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned answered and said, the man, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, might this thing be? Basically, he's questioning Yahweh's ability to do this. Even if God could open up the heavens and we could see into glory, how could we know that this is possible? This is the king's right-hand man, we could say. And Elisha just responds with this word of judgment. Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. It's a promise of relief, a promise of recovery, a promise of hope to God's people, given by God's man through God's word. Then notice... The whole narrative shifts in verse number three with another very sudden shift in tone and shift in focus to a group of lepers. There was four lepers, it tells us, verse number three, and there uh, four leprous men at the entering of the gate, and they said to one another, why sit here until we die? They're talking with themselves. They're reasoning with themselves at the state of affairs in Israel and the state of affairs in their own lives. Why sit here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Their reasoning is pretty sound. These lepers, they're outcasts. They are doomed to die no matter what. They realize that no matter which way they go, they are dead men walking. It doesn't really matter where they end up. They are surely to be dead. If they go back in Israel, there's a famine. There's no food. They're going to die of starvation. If they sit outside, they're just going to die in their leprosy. If we go to the Syrians, maybe they'll kill us. Maybe they won't, though. And at least they have food. Maybe we can uh, hork a, a pack of donuts from them or something. We can get something from them. We can get just a, maybe even a scrap off of a table. That is the best chance they have, which is kind of stunning. At least they have food is their whole logic. In verse 5 it says, And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And notice, and when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, of camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Everyone was gone. The camp was a ghost town. It looked as if the rapture had occurred. Everyone had just left their cloaks, left their garments all on the floors of that camp. They had left their swords and their belts and their spears. They had just looked at everyone had just ran. And they go all over this campground. 
making sure that no one is around. And it says in verse 8, And when these leopards came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried them silver and gold and raiment and went in and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried it thence also and went and hid it. They are partying. They are rejoicing. They are amassing a nice little nest egg for them. That way maybe they're worried about their families. They can have the silver and gold. They can have a nice retirement something. They're amassing all kinds of possessions eating their fill, drinking their fill, and they come to this realization, verse number nine. Then they said to one another, we do not do well. Hold on to this phrase. This is awesome. This day is a day of good tidings. And we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. So they're eating and drinking and partying and they suddenly have a sense of conscience. And they're like, how dare we do this while our countrymen, just a couple of yards away, are starving to death. So they determined to go back to the city gates and tell their brothers. Verse number 10. So they came and called into the porter of the city, the gatekeeper. And they told them, saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither the voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied to the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house. So now the king is told of this really amazing news. There's this camp of Syria, but no one's there. It's a ghost town. And the king arose in the night, verse 12, and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore... Are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. The king, I would say, has a perfectly legitimate response. (laughs) He's thinking like a general in the middle of a war. They're in the middle of war. Wouldn't you think that if someone just found an empty campground, that you would just be like, that's a trap. That's an ambush. Why would they ever just leave all of their horses, all of their supplies, all of their weapons, just all over the ground? That seems more than a little suspicious. And he says, surely they're there just to entrap us. And yet, then one of his servants speaks up. And one of his servants answered, verse 13, and said, Let, me, let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in the city. Behold... They are, all, are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israels that are consumed. And let us send and see. Let us just take a chance. What do we have to lose? There's really no risk in, in venturing upon this. If you just send a couple of guys out to just spy out the land, see if what these lepers are telling you are true. So he does. He dispatches two chariots. And what do you think they found? Look at verse 14. They took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them and unto Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. They found it just as God had said. 
Now Israel's economy was totally recovered. They had found it just as Elisha had promised and preached that this day your whole relief will be assured unto you. It's amazing. Just exactly as God said. And all of this is because of what God did for his people. I intentionally wanted to skip over those verses because I wanted to go back on to them and highlight them. Because according to everyone in this passage, they have no idea why this occurred. They have no idea why they found this camp the way that they found it. To them, it was just luck, happenstance, just an occurrence that they can't explain. It was something that happened, and now they're rejoicing in the spoils. But what did God do for his people? Look at verse number 6. For the Lord, why was there no Syrians there? For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said to one another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. There was no invading armies. There was no Hittite infantry. There was no Egyptian cavalry. It was just a noise. Just a noise that God made this army here. And then suddenly, just imagine the scene. A whole host of bloodthirsty Syrian warriors are running for their lives like little girls because they're afraid of this noise. They're leaving everything in the dust. They're leaving everything behind. This is the handiwork of the king of kings. This is what he does. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't require chariots or infantry or soldiers. He doesn't need nuclear power. This is how powerful he is. He doesn't need a flash of lightning. He doesn't need fanfare. He doesn't need anything flamboyant to defeat his enemies. You know what he needs? He needs a noise. A word. As it was in 1 Kings chapter 19, all it is is a still, small voice. These are the methods by which Yahweh reveals how mighty he is. Just a noise, and this enemy scatters. Just a noise, and God's people are delivered. How amazing is that? How powerful is our God? Just this noise. And Israel, who was at their lowest, when all had seemed hopeless and beyond repair, that's when Yahweh worked. And worked so powerfully that their deliverance was totally secure and sure and guaranteed for them. And notice, notice who Yahweh gets to be the news bearers of this. Again, he employs these lepers A group of four unnamed, unknown outcasts of Israel suddenly become the bearers of good tidings. They say that. Did you remember that in verse number 9? This is the day of good tidings. They become messengers of a gospel. That's what gospel means. 
Good tidings, good news. These messengers come back to all of their brothers and they say, we have a message of good tidings. And it got me to thinking, has there ever been a time in Scripture, other than just this moment, when a group of news bearers shared a message of good news that was at first disbelieved? Was there never another time when a group of people came back to their beloved ones, their loved ones, and they shared a message of good news, and at first it was received with, I don't think so. I think you must have been mistaken. I cannot help but see a parallel between these four lepers of this text and the women at the tomb in Luke 24. The women who, in Luke chapter 24, they approached that tomb where their Lord was. If you remember, you can go there if you want. That tomb, that place where their Lord, their teacher, their master was buried. And they did not expect to find anything unusual. They weren't expecting to find a miracle. They were grieving. They didn't even know how they were going to get in to embalm the Lord as they wanted to. There was a tomb. There was a stone in front of the door. How were they going to get in? They didn't know. They were mourning. They were grieving. And yet, what did they find? They found an empty tomb. There was no no body there. And the angel greets them and says, what did you expect to find? And then suddenly, all these shell-shocked women are now running back to the apostles. Because why? This is the day of good tidings. And they come back to the apostles and they share their news. And what are the apostles' words? (laughs) Luke 24, 11 says this. Their words, the women's words, seemed to them as idle tales. And they believed them not. The apostles just saw this good news as nonsense. How can this be? How, how, how can this thing you're talking about be true? It was nonsense to them. And they did not believe it. So they had to see it for themselves. Just like these Israelites And what did they find, too? They found an empty tomb. And ever since then, the apostles have been changed. Ever since that moment, the apostles have been different. And ever since then, all of the apostles have been gathering and trying to get more and more people to do what? To share in the spoils of Jesus' victory. You see, Jesus' defeat of sin and death is Very much like his overthrow of the Syrians. When Jesus was on that cross, he was defeating death and sin and hell and darkness and the grave. And it didn't look like it. There was no flash. Angels didn't come down and assist Jesus in this massive uh, battle uh, there at Golgotha. There was no fanfare. Actually, if you looked on the surface of it, the cross looked like utter failure. It looked like the enemy had won. It looked like Satan had won the day. It looked nothing like triumph. And yet three days later, Jesus rose from that grave. A resurrected Lord. And he barely even made a stir. He walked out of that tomb. The stone was rolled away. Barely making a noise. No one would have even known if it wasn't for these women. But as he walked out, 
He was trampling all of the enemies of goodness and holiness under his feet. This is how he works. He works through seeming devastation in order to bring about his wonderful, joyful deliverance. In ways that seem impossible, in ways that seem preposterous. Yes, just a noise. Yes, just a cross. And yet, sin is gone. Sin is defeated. And now, everyone who believes in that victory is invited to share in it. Did you notice? Once they see more people in verse 16 come out and it says, they spoiled the tents. What a phrase. They spoiled all of these things of the Syrians because they were given a victory that they didn't win, but it was given to them. Victory on a silver platter was handed to them. They didn't even have to lift a pinky finger. And victory was given to the people of God. And isn't that just like Christ? Victory is yours without you even lifting a finger. He has defeated everything in the way of you and him. The way is cleared. There is no more sin. He has defeated it once for all. And yet, not everyone is able to enjoy these spoils. Look at verse 17. Remember that faithless captain from verse 2 of chapter 7? It says, and the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate. And the people trod upon him in the gate and he died. As the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. And as it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate. And, the Lord, and that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now, behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt not see it with thine eyes, and, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. This is his demise. Just as Elisha had said, this captain of the king sees the victory, but was not able to share in it. He sees the recovery of all of Israel's people, but was not able to rejoice in that victory, in that triumph. Instead, just at that gate, which was an emblem of their, of their amazing triumph, he is trampled to death. It's tragic, yes. Tragic disbelief. Tragic unfaith. And I would say the same thing occurs every single day when men and women enter eternity not accepting the news of their deliverance. Disbelieving God's word can only result in destruction, can only result in devastation, such as it was for all of Israel, such as it was for this man, such as it is even to this day when men and women, yes, they hear the news of God and yet they go out, they don't believe it, they don't confess faith and forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. And they enter into the day of their destruction. May it never be. Because there's good news to be had. There's a victory that's theirs. My friends, do not let today be the day of your destruction. You know what today is? This is the day of good tidings. 
Just as it was here, when all seems lost, when all seem devastated, the good news of Yahweh's deliverance was spoken through the word of God, through the mouth of God's servants, Elisha. The good news is still ringing out for you and for me and for the world today. Romans 8.28 is no fancy myth. It's no fable. It's no fairy tale. God is working all things together for good according to his purposes. And it's true. He takes the most devastating circumstances and he works out the most brilliant deliverance for his glory. My friends, the Lord of the Lord is sure. The enemy is defeated and there is a victory that is yours in Christ. It was won for you by him. It was purchased for you by our king. He didn't even have to lift a finger. Is this victory one that you have made yours? Are you rejoicing in the victory that Christ has given to you? Are you on the wall? Doubting the ways in which God can work this salvation for you. My friends, this salvation is waiting for you. Let us pray.